0: This is our American stories, and from 1955 to 1975, to Helen Back, the true life story of America's most decorated soldier of World War II, Audie Murphy. Was Universal Studios' highest earning motion picture. That is, until a 27 year old unknown writer director named Steven Spielberg signed on to a movie based on Peter Benchley's best selling novel titled Jaws. And today, on this day in history, that movie opened in 1975. Here's Steven Spielberg and author screenwriter Peter Benchley.
1: When I first hear the word JAWS, you know, I just think of a period in my life uh, when I was much younger than I am right now. And I think because I was younger, I was more courageous or I was more stupid. I'm not sure which. So when I think of JAWS, I think about courage and stupidity. And I think of both of those things existing underwater. <laughs>
2: I had been thinking for years about a story about a shark that attacks people and what would happen if it came in and wouldn't go away and and I hadn't done anything with it really. And then in 1964 I read a story about a shark fisherman off Long Island who caught a 4550 pound great white shark off the beaches of Long Island and I thought, wow, what would happen if one of these things came in and wouldn't go away. And again, I didn't do anything about it until 1970 or 71 when a publisher finally said, that's an interesting story. I'll pay you a couple of dollars if you'll put it on paper. So that's how the idea began.
0: Here's Jaws producers Richard Zanuck and David Brown after reading the novel.
3: We both read it overnight, got on the phone with each other the next morning and uh, said, look, we don't know how we can possibly do it, but we decided we, we must have this. Whatever it takes, this is the most exciting thing we've ever read, and we'll figure out later how, to, how we can make it.
4: Had we read it twice, in my opinion, we never would have made Jaws, because anybody with a modicum of production knowledge would know there was no way to get a shark to leap on the stern of a small boat and swallow a man. How are we going to do this? Were we going to do it in animation? Who was going to do
0: this? Here's Spielberg on his writing team, and one of the most memorable scenes in Jaws.
1: Peter Bench did a very good adaptation of his own novel. And then Peter kind of turned it over to me and said, here it is, and do with it what you want. And at that point, I didn't quite know what to do with it because it wasn't the movie I wanted to make next. And I remember sitting down and writing the script myself and doing an entire draft myself from beginning to end. It was more of an exercise for me to become familiar with what I wanted Jaws to become and it was an exercise that was very beneficial because I suddenly had a vision of the film even though I didn't possess the skills to write it and David Brown suggested and Dick Zanik both suggested that I go to Howard Sackler who had written The Great White Hope Howard Sackler
4: specifically asked not to have credit he only had a limited time to give to the
1: film and therefore he said I don't want credit Sackler really broke the back of the movie and got me to say, yes, I'll make this movie next. I'm committing.
5: Tohupa, <laughs> that's
1: the USS
5: Indianapolis.
6: you on the Indianapolis?
1: The Indianapolis speech, which for me is my favorite part of Jaws, the this, this speech that Shaw gives about that, um, that was conceived by Howard Sackler who only really wrote a short paragraph. And one day I was talking to John Milius and I said, could you make this longer? Because I think it's a speech, not just a couple of short paragraphs. 1,100
5: men went into the water. A vessel went down in 12 minutes. Didn't see the first shark for about half an hour. And so
1: John sat down and he wrote page after page, in longhand, I believe, when Robert Shaw read it, Shaw said, let me have a chance of rewriting it. So and then Shaw rewrote Milius, who had rewritten Sackler, and the speech in the movie is uh, basically Shaw's version of Milius' version of Sackler's version.
5: You know the thing about a shark? He's got lifeless eyes, black eyes,
6: like a doll's eyes.
5: And when he comes at you, doesn't seem to be living until he bites you and those black eyes roll over white, and then, oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red, and in spite of all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in, and they rip you to pieces.
0: The legendary English actor Robert Shaw was cast as the unforgettable shark hunter Quint. Here's Spielberg uncasting Richard Dreyfus, as oceanographer Matt Hooper.
1: I cast Dreyfus basically because I, I loved American Graffiti, and I had seen him in that, and George Lucas was the person who sort of said to me, why don't you cast Ricky, Ricky Dreyfus? He'd be great. And he told me this movie that he wanted to make, and it was really a, a
6: shocker. I mean, even as he was telling it to me as a tale, it was a great, exciting story. And I said, well, this, this sounds like it's going to be a great movie. I'd rather watch this movie than shoot it, because it's going to be a bitch to shoot. Then a few months later, I went to see the opening of a film that I had done in Canada called The Apprenticeship of Duty Kravitz. And I saw myself, really, for the first time. And I had a heart attack. I had a total nervous collapse. I thought I was awful. And I, I figured that I'd better get a job really soon. So I called Stephen, and I said, If you still want to offer me that job, I'll take it. He said, yes. So in essence, I came crawling to Martha's Vineyard for the part.
0: And is Richard Dreyfus glad he crawled back? And when we come back, more on Jaws on This Day in History. It debuted in 1975. And as always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to study all of the fine and beautiful things in life, the Constitution, philosophy, art, everything and if you can't get to Hillsdale Hillsdale will come to you go to hillsdale.edu and take their terrific and free online courses when we come back the rest of the story of Jaws it debuted on this day in history in 1975 And we continue with our story on the debut of Jaws on this day in history in 1975. In movie making, casting a location is just as important as casting the right actor.
3: When it came down to where we would shoot this film, uh, we sent Joe Alves, our production designer, out with a team to give us some ideas and some photographs and pictures of where this town should be shot and one of the places was the island of Martha's Vineyard, which, believe it or not, had never been photographed by a feature film before. They had very strict rules and regulations there.
4: Martha's Vineyard didn't particularly care for a movie invasion. They didn't like to see an artificial shark parked in a channel where their homes
1: faced it. The real attraction of Martha's Vineyard, you couldn't see with the naked eye. It was the fact that it was the only place on the East Coast where I could go 12 miles out to sea and still have a sandy bottom only 30 feet below the surface of the water where we could put the sharks fled and where the mechanical shark could could, could function. It's very important that no matter what direction my cameras turned, I didn't want to see land. My fear was the minute the audience saw land, they'd say, look, this is getting pretty intense out here. Just turn the boat around and go toward that land that we keep seeing in your movie. I wanted the audience to feel very cut off, like they couldn't just run back to shore because there was no shore to run back to.
0: Like a Hitchcock thriller, much of the horror in Jaws is left to the imagination. Most notably, the opening scene where the girl is swimming at dawn. Here again is Spielberg.
1: Because even in the book, the book does describe the shark before you see the attack. I thought that what could really be scary was not seeing the shark and just seeing the water because we all are familiar with the water. Very few of us have been in the water with a shark. But we've all gone swimming. And the idea of this girl going swimming and the audience going swimming with her would have been too extraordinary if, like a Leviathan, the shark had come out of the water with its jaws agape and come down on her. And it would have been a spectacular opening for the film, but there would have been nothing primal about it, it would just have been a, a monster moment that we've all seen. And I really wanted to do it without seeing the shark in that in that case, and I wanted the violent jerking motions to just start to trigger our imaginations into either thinking about what's happening below the surface of the water line or blocking what was happening below the surface.
4: <laughs> the first jerk down Stephen did. He had a cable that came to the front of my stomach and went to a anchor that was laying on the bottom of the ocean. And then he just sat, and when he wanted that pull, he just would pull. He wanted to put me on an electric winch, and I wanted to have more control, so we used manpower. They put cutoff Levi's on and had cables running from me out to the side to two pilings, and then all the way into the beach. And what they would do is we'd put marks on the beach and the guys, we'd have five or six guys on each line and they would run back and forth from mark to mark. So I didn't have the hard work to do. I just kind of sat there and got pulled around. The guys were running back and forth on the beach.
6: For some reason or other, they both went the same time and they broke some ribs. And she screamed. And when she screamed, she went underwater. <laughs> And then she started saying, "Please, God, dear God," like that. And the water was rolling in her mouth, and the word "God" would come out every once in a while. Help me! Help me! She was hurting. I mean, absolutely hurting.
7: I
8: thought she was dying. I was watching it being filmed, and it was so real. No!
6: And we went with the one that really hurt her, and that's the one that's in the picture.
0: And then there's the shark, or as they say, the star of the film. Here's members of the Jaws production team on their star.
4: A bunch of us young punks went to this hangar where they built the shark. Stephen had been taught how to turn on the hydraulic thing so the mouth would open and close. I remember George Lucas crawled into the mouth of this thing. I was looking at these feet sticking out of the mouth, and I said, the relationship of him to that shark is the same as me to a taco. You know, I mean, this thing is going to eat all of you. It ain't going to get your leg. It's going to get you. But of course, then we broke it. We broke the damn thing. And we all ran out of there like little
3: kids. After a couple of months, we had a frame, we had a skin on, uh, and an unpainted shark. And we, we had it in the parking lot, and it wiggled. And we said, great, you know, let's go to the vineyard and make a movie. Most of the hydraulic valves on the shark were powered by electric solenoids and they got the whole thing put together and when they dumped it in the water, everything fried. And so Stephen had to start shooting everything but shark.
6: Guys, we can't shoot right now, hold on.
3: Every day you come in from shooting, how's the shark, how are they coming, did they try it? You know, And they would try it and it'd break down. Every day the sharks would be tested and every day the jaw would go oh, oh, or
6: the eyes would pop out.
1: That's a much maligned shark and I'm kind of responsible for creating the, a lot of the bad mouthing about the shark because the shark was frustrating it, it didn't really work all the time it didn't work hardly at all hence the wonderful and classic
4: beginning of jaws in which no shark is seen but a woman is drawn down into the waters and there came the terror
0: we've learned from the two movies rocky and goodfellas the importance that that cam played in both movie successes jaws took the concept of the steady cam and put it on water here's spielberg and his crew
1: I really wanted this movie to be just at water level, the way we are when we're treading water. We don't see water three feet off the water. We see water
3: like this. By holding the camera next to the water, just hand-holding it in a water box, which I had made specially for this picture. Panavision built it for me. And then I designed and built rafts so that we could work this water box right at water level. And this has a... A psychology about it that makes you subconsciously aware that right below the surface of that water could be that shark.
0: Without great sound and music there's no such thing as a great picture. Here's the crew, including music composer of Jaws, John Williams, talking about the movie's iconic sound. We needed
6: something that everybody could say, that's a shark. We took a large uh, coke bottle and we shook it up real good, threw it out on the cement and it goes Shh. Put that and a zipper and a little bit of water and you've got the shark coming out
4: We showed the film to our financiers at Universal Picture in a rough cut without the music I had to turn around and say, what do you think? And the response from one of the executives was, it's okay, that was about it. Johnny Williams' score was not in there. The shark should be
3: represented by something in sound or in music, probably music, because there's no sound underneath the water. I expected to hear something kind of
1: weird and melodic, you know,
3: and kind of tonal but eerie and but I thought maybe some kind of driving thing in the bottom of the orchestra might indicate the mindless attack of the shark. Bum, 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 bum.
1: And what he played me instead with two fingers on the lower keys was, dun, dun, dun,
4: dun, 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 dun. dun. And Stephen said, is that all?
1: And Johnny said, yeah, that's
4: it.
3: One could alter the speed of this ostinato. It could be note, note. Note, note any kind of alteration of speed to to very slow, very fast, very soft, very loud. All these things could manipulate the the moment. That combination of sound and and uh, image forming a memory, which can then be referred back to.
1: And without that score, to this day, I believe the film would have only been half as successful.
0: Once Jaws hit the big screen, it did for ocean swimming what Psycho did for taking a shower. Jaws is now considered one of the greatest films ever made. It was the prototypical summer blockbuster, with its release regarded as a watershed moment in motion picture history. Because of it, today, there's a battle every summer to see who will become this summer's blockbuster motion picture. Jaws became the highest-grossing film of all time until the release of Star Wars... With a $9 million budget, it grossed $471 million at the box office. Jaws won three Academy Awards for Best Film Editing, Best Original Dramatic Score, and Best Sound. It was also nominated for Best Picture, losing to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And Spielberg greatly resented the fact that he was not nominated for Best Director. Along with Star Wars, Jaws was pivotal in establishing the modern Hollywood business model which revolves around high box office returns from action and adventure pictures with simple, high-concept premises that are released during the summer in thousands of theaters and supported by heavy advertising. Jaws was followed by three sequels, none with the participation of Spielberg, and there were many imitative thrillers thereafter. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This day in history, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College And in 1975, Jaws made its debut. This is Our American Stories, and on our show, we like to share the experiences of our soldiers in order to help heal the citizen-soldier divide, and there's a big one in this country. One of our regular contributors is Ben Sledge. Ben's a wounded combat veteran with tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, where he spent time in the United States Army, serving a portion of it under the Special Ops Command before leaving the military after 11 years of service. He's the recipient of the Bronze Star, the Purple Heart, and two Army Commendation Medals. Ben now works within the music industry for Heart Support, a nonprofit that helps millennials battling addiction, suicide ideation, depression, sexual abuse, loneliness, broken relationships, and a host of other issues. Here, he tells the story of his friend Casey, someone who helped him transition back to normal everyday life after his deployment.
9: It was raining the day Casey died. Fourteen years earlier, you hunched, covering your face as sun-bleached gravel whipped through your hair and pelted your cheek. Then, coming helicopters kicked gravel and sand into those stupid of us enough to wait, or curious enough to discover more. Men ran frantically while pointing and yelling. Some had black smudges across their face. You could only assume it was tar or gunpowder. Then they hauled them off the helicopter while yelling to clear a path. Most people remember the first time they've watched someone die. Grandma in the hospital bed whose hand goes slack, the friend in the accident who exhales one last time while his eyes go wide. Yours involve blood and gurgling noises, the bleached earth turning a dark crimson while the stretcher drizzled the nearby ground like light rain. You always remember the gasping noises. It's that noise that sticks out the most. Everything else after that moment is blocked out, It's like trying to open a portion of your mind where you buried a key, but the key is in a safe whose combination you don't know. And you toss that safe to the bottom of the ocean. Never mind the fact you can't remember where you tossed the safe or what ocean it's in. Years later, it's the gurgling, gasping noise you remember. And then a rifle, two boots, a helmet, and dog tags. That's what you remember. Casey was there when he had those dreams. The ones about men dying? The ones where you remembered you were all alone in this big green earth? The ones where you felt abandoned and misunderstood? She would cradle your face and whisper, they're there. Our soul often remembers the darkest days or the moments that permanently changed us. As Casey was dying, these were the memories that flooded my stream of consciousness, coming home from war, facing divorce, feelings of abandonment and loneliness, and the morbid death dreams. Why are you dwelling on some of the most horrific life moments now? I pondered. It wasn't until after her passing that I realized the same lessons she always taught me. She was now teaching me in death. For much of my life, I believed the trauma I endured would affect everything I touched, would last forever, and that some of it was my fault. I helped blow up my marriage being gone all the time. Couldn't stop thinking about how alone I feel. I had no one, and I deserve that. You wonder how to go on with life, and whether you'll ever be okay. It'll get better, is the platitude you hear offered by others. But they don't know what to say either. Casey was different. The word she spoke over and over again was a simple one. Endure. It was as if Casey was my personal butler, Alfred, and I was Batman. In the movie The Dark Knight, Bruce Wayne seems stuck in an impossible dilemma and asks his butler for personal advice, whereas others might have given him a pat on the back and said, Buck up, kiddo. You're the Batman, and you're rich. Alfred instead delivers one of the most powerful lines in the movie. He tells him, Endure, Master Wayne. Take it. You can make the choice that no one else can make. The right choice. People these days fall apart over seemingly nothing. They didn't get the job they wanted. Life isn't going according to their five-year plan. They're not married or in a relationship. They feel they lack purpose or direction. Their waiter got their order wrong. Much of the Western world seems to lack resiliency and the ability to endure hardship, it would seem. We don't know how to process grief, let alone the crises life throws at us. But sorting through our disappointment, grief, and trauma paramount to becoming a whole and resilient person. In their book, Option B, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience, and Finding Joy, Adam Grant and Sheryl Sanderberg explain, We plant the seeds of resilience in ways we process negative events. After spending decades studying how people deal with setbacks, psychologist Martin Siegelman found that three Ps can stunt recovery. 1. Personalization. The belief that we are at fault. 2. Pervasiveness. The belief that an event will affect all areas of our life. And three, permanence. The belief that the aftershocks of the event will last forever. The three Ps play like the flip side of the pop song. Everything is awesome. Everything is awful. The loop in your head repeats, it's my fault this is awful. My whole life is awful. And it's always going to be awful. As Casey went blind, and could no longer walk up the stairs at my house. I knew it was time to endure grief and pain once more. So I gently laid her in the back of my car and drove to the veterinarian. I guess I forgot to mention, Casey was my 16-year-old cat. I never wanted to be the guy who gets overly attached to an animal, let alone falls to pieces when they die. To some degree, it's unhealthy. There are children dying in Syria we need to be more concerned with than Fluffy or Fido. However, when I shared this sentiment in the midst of my grief with my best friend, he reminded me of something. It scares me how attached I am to my dog sometimes. I think the reason why is that with him, it's a different relationship. With my dog, I never have to wonder where I stand with him or if I've let him down. That's a lesson I'm taking to heart to love my wife and friends better. What lesson did Casey teach you? Before I got remarried, I lived with a close friend who played football for Dartmouth. He too had a cat he was obsessed with. We always laugh about an evening we invited two girls over who made fun of us for looking like professional athletes that had an uncanny affection for cats. My old roommate's cat, named Gus, died tragically about a year ago. When he shared what he learned, I realized his lesson was the same as mine, resilience. His cat was an anchor when he moved to another state, found himself in a job he hated, lived alone, and wanted to kill himself. That cat kept me from killing myself. Who the hell was gonna feed him if I was gone? Then over time, I realized he was weathering the changes better than I was. If my cat could make it, so could I. When Gus passed away, despite his grief, he took that lesson to heart and endured. He continues to do so in the midst of some of the hardest situations and decisions he's faced. Perhaps that's the great joy we often miss, and the animals we love. The lessons they teach us that help us grow stronger. Whether that's loving someone when they don't deserve it, resilience, patience, or even suffering well. Animals seem to endure suffering better than humans, whereas we ask why, they crawl off to be alone. When I arrived at the vet to put Casey down, I tried not to cry in front of the tech. When it came time to put her down, the vet asked me. Are you ready for this?" That's when the memories I described in the beginning flooded back. There was Casey, cuddling my face when I felt sad, and teaching me to endure. I was in Afghanistan and Iraq, I say through a knowing smile, I've seen worse. An hour later, I buried Casey in my backyard while it rained. I buried her in the spot. Where there was no grass growing, and most of the vegetation was dead, I figured it was appropriate. Because even in her death, where she's buried, reminds me that where there's no grass, there's always an opportunity for some to grow.
0: And great job on that, Faith. And thank you, Ben. Ben Sledge's story, his cat's story, Casey, here on Our American Stories. American stories, and one of the great stories of the 20th century is The Great Gatsby, a 1925 novel written by F. Scott Fitzgerald that follows a cast of characters living on Long Island in the summer of 1922. Nick Carraway, the novel's narrator, rents a small home on Long Island next door to the lavish mansion of Jay Gatsby, a mysterious multimillionaire who holds extravagant parties but does not participate in them. We start at the end of this classic American novel set in the Roaring Twenties with a dramatic reading by Frank Muller.
5: One of my most vivid memories is of coming back west from prep school and later from college at Christmas time. Those who went farther than Chicago would gather in the old dim Union Station at 6 o'clock of a December evening with a few Chicago friends, already caught up into their own holiday gaieties to bid them a hasty goodbye. I remember the fur coats of the girls returning from miss this or That's, and the chatter of frozen breath, and the hands waving overhead as we caught sight of old acquaintances, and the matchings of invitations, are you going to the Ordways, the Herseys, the Schultz's, and the long green tickets clasped tight in our gloved hands, and last the murky yellow cars of the Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railroad, looking cheerful as Christmas itself on the tracks beside the gate. When we pulled out into the winter night and the real snow, our snow, began to stretch out beside us and twinkle against the windows and the dim lights of small Wisconsin stations moved by, a sharp wild brace came suddenly into the air. We drew in deep breaths of it as we walked back from dinner through the cold vestibules, unutterably aware of our identity with this country for one strange hour before we melted indistinguishably into it again. That's my Middle West, not the wheats or the prairies or the lost Swede towns, but the thrilling returning trains of my youth and the street lamps and sleigh bells in the frosty dark and the shadows of holly wreaths thrown by lighted windows on the snow. I am part of that, a little solemn with the feel of those long winters, a little complacent from growing up in the Carraway House in a city where dwellings are still called through decades by a family's name. I see now that this has been a story of the West, after all. Tom and Gatsby, Daisy and Jordan and I were all Westerners, and perhaps we possessed some deficiency in common which made us subtly unadaptable to Eastern life. Even when the East excited me most, even when I was most keenly aware of its superiority to the bored, sprawling, swollen towns beyond the Ohio, with their interminable inquisitions which spared only the children and the very old, even then it had always for me a quality of distortion. West Egg especially still figures in my more fantastic dreams. I see it as a night scene by El Greco. A hundred houses, at once conventional and grotesque, crouching under a sullen overhanging sky and a lusterless moon. In the foreground, four solemn men in dress suits are walking along the sidewalk with a stretcher on which lies a drunken woman in a white evening dress. Her hand, which dangles over the side, sparkles cold with jewels. Gravely, the men turn in at a house, the wrong house, But no one knows the woman's name, and no one cares. After Gatsby's death, the East was haunted for me like that, distorted beyond my eyes power of correction. So when the blue smoke of brittle leaves was in the air, and the wind blew the wet laundry stiff on the line, I decided to come back home. There was one thing to be done before I left, an awkward, unpleasant thing, that perhaps had better have been let alone. But I wanted to leave things in order and not just trust that obliging and indifferent sea to sweep my refuse away. I saw Jordan Baker and talked over and around what had happened to us together and what had happened afterward to me, and she lay perfectly still, listening in a big chair. She was dressed to play golf, and I remember thinking she looked like a good illustration Her chin raised a little jauntily, her hair the color of an autumn leaf, her face the same brown tint as the fingerless glove on her knee. When I had finished she told me without comment that she was engaged to another man. I doubted that, though there were several she could have married in a nod of her head. But I pretended to be surprised. For just a minute I wondered if I wasn't making a mistake. Then I thought it all over again quickly and got up to say goodbye. Nevertheless, you did throw me over, said Jordan suddenly. You threw me over on the telephone. I don't give a damn about you now, but it was a new experience for me, and I felt a little dizzy for a while. We shook hands. Oh, and do you remember, she added, a conversation we had once about driving a car. Why, not exactly. You said a bad driver was only safe until she met another bad driver. Well, I met another bad driver, didn't I? i mean it was careless of me to make such a wrong guess i thought you were rather an honest straightforward person i thought it was your secret pride i'm 30 i said i'm five years too old to lie to myself and call it honor she didn't answer angry and half in love with her and tremendously sorry i turned away one afternoon late in october i saw tom buchanan he was walking ahead of me along fifth avenue in his alert aggressive way his hands out a little from his body as if to fight off interference, his head moving sharply here and there, adapting itself to his restless eyes. Just as I slowed up to avoid overtaking him, he stopped and began frowning into the windows of a jewelry store. Suddenly he saw me and walked back, holding out his hand. "'What's the matter, Nick? Do you object to shaking hands with me?' "'Yes. You know what I think of you.' "'You're crazy, Nick,' he said quickly. "'Crazy as hell. I don't know what's the matter with you.' "'Tom,' I inquired.' What did you say to Wilson that afternoon? He stared at me without a word, and I knew I had guessed right about those missing hours. I started to turn away, but he took a step after me and grabbed my arm. I told him the truth, he said. He came to the door while we were getting ready to leave, and when I sent down word that we weren't in, he tried to force his way upstairs. He was crazy enough to kill me if I hadn't told him who owned the car. His hand was on a revolver in his pocket every minute he was in the house. He broke off defiantly. What if I did tell him? That fellow had it coming to him. He threw dust into your eyes just like he did in Daisy's, but he was a tough one. He ran over Myrtle like you'd run over a dog and never even stopped his car. There was nothing I could say except the one unutterable fact that it wasn't true. And if you think I didn't have my share of suffering... Look here, when I went to give up that flat and saw that damn box of dog-biscuits sitting there on the sideboard, I sat down and cried like a baby. By God, it was awful. I couldn't forgive him or like him, but I saw that what he had done was to him entirely justified. It was all very careless and confused.' They were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and creatures and then retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together and let other people clean up the mess they had made. I shook hands with him. It seemed silly not to, for I felt suddenly as though I were talking to a child. Then he went into the jewelry store to buy a pearl necklace or perhaps only a pair of cuff buttons, rid of my provincial squeamishness forever. Gatsby's house was still empty when I left. The grass on his lawn had grown as long as mine. One of the taxi drivers in the village never took a fare past the entrance gate without stopping for a minute and pointing inside. Perhaps it was he who drove Daisy and Gatsby over to East Egg the night of the accident. And perhaps he had made a story about it all his own. I didn't want to hear it, and I avoided him when I got off the train. I spent my Saturday nights in New York, because those gleaming, dazzling parties of his were with me so vividly that I could still hear the music and the laughter, faint and incessant from his garden, and the cars going up and down his drive. One night I did hear a material car there, and saw its lights stop at his front steps, but I didn't investigate. Probably it was some final guest who had been away at the ends of the earth and didn't know that the party was over. On the last night, with my trunk packed and my car sold to the grocer, I went over and looked at that huge, incoherent failure of a house once more. On the white steps, an obscene word scrawled by some boy with a piece of brick stood out clearly in the moonlight, and I erased it, drawing my shoe raspingly along the stone. Then I wandered down to the beach and sprawled out on the sand. Most of the big shore places were closed now, and there were hardly any lights except the shadowy, moving glow of a ferryboat across the Sound. And as the moon rose higher, the inessential houses began to melt away, until gradually I became aware of the old island here that flowered once for Dutch sailors' eyes, a fresh, green breast of the New World, its vanished trees. The trees that had made way for Gatsby's house had once pandered in whispers to the last and greatest of all human dreams. For a transitory, enchanted moment, man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent. Compelled into an aesthetic contemplation he neither understood nor desired, face to face for the last time in history with something commensurate to his capacity for wonder. And as I sat there brooding on the old unknown world, I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked out the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. He had come a long way to this blue lawn, and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him, somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgiastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine morning, so we beat on. Boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past.
0: And again, that's Frank Muller, his reading of The Great Gatsby, the great 1925 novel by F. Scott Fitzgerald. A great story here on Our American Stories. <music> This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. They say that dogs are man's best friend, but what about the cats? By the way, we have a lot of talks here as we prepare our show about dogs and cats and food uh, and other such things, the things that matter in life, right? And you know, there are cat people, there are dog people, and we're not here to have an opinion about either, though I have four pugs that all weigh in under 35 pounds, to which Stan says those aren't dogs, those are cats. And uh, I I disagree, Stan, but, you know, he's got his point. And then, of course, there are the cat folks, and we own a cat. We have a cat named Spunky, a boy, and he kills, well, anything that moves. And he's an outdoor cat that lives on our patio furniture, occasionally comes indoors, walks around for about five minutes and goes, I'm out of here, can't stand it, too boring and wants to go right back outside and hunt and do all the things that Spunky does. Well, oftentimes for cities, cats are disposable. And here is one of our Hillsdale interns, Monty Montgomery, with a story about an organization that is sticking up for the kitty cats.
10: Cats in America are facing a serious problem.
8: Cats aren't being adopted from the McDowell County Animal Shelter. You've got uh, so many sources, internet, that give them away free, so it's hard for us to compete. It's $65 to adopt a cat from here. That pays for shots and spaying. Plus, Blevin says, cats are just not adopted as often as dogs. And these obstacles are reflected in the shelter's 95% kill rate for cats.
10: But one Kansas City nonprofit organization is doing something unique to solve this feline crisis.
8: Casey Pet Project is a nonprofit organization that operates the Kansas City, Missouri animal shelter, and we take in over ten thousand pets a year here in our largest no-kill shelter, actually in Kansas City. And we do a lot of great work with adoptions all around the community. We adopt out uh, well over sixty-seven hundred pets each year. Some of that involves um, some really fun training things with our cats.
10: Training cats. It's not as crazy as it seems. And the Kansas City Pet Project is doing just that.
8: In 2017, we had a different scenario than we've ever had before, where we adopted out more cats than we did dogs for the first time since taking over the shelter. And a lot of that is because we do clicker training with all of our cats every morning. So we try to associate whenever people come in first thing in the morning, they hear that clicker, they get a treat. And then they start their cleaning process um, throughout the day. So the first positive interaction that they have every day is with a human. So that way they know that from here on out they're going to, um, that human is going to take care of them and we can clean around them and help, um, you know, with some other enrichment things throughout the day.
10: And that clicker training leads cats to learn how to high-five among all things. How does this training work exactly? Every time that the cat does something even close to what the trainer wants, such as lifting a paw, it hears a click and gets a treat and begins associating that action with getting the treat. Every time the cat puts its paw in the trainer's hand, click. Every time the cat high fives, click. This seems bizarre, but it absolutely works and is rooted in a concept called positive reinforcement.
8: We're also... Teaching some cats how to do tricks, we've been able to be successful with uh, teaching cats how to high-five and do some other tricks through clicker training. Even things like fetch that you wouldn't normally associate um, cats doing.
10: So cats, the pessimists of the animal kingdom, now seem more sociable to potential adopters, which has led to some fantastic results for the organization founded just six years ago
8: started here as a brand new organization here in Kansas City, Missouri, and in our first year took in nearly 8,000 pets and ended with over 90% uh what we call a live relief rate in the shelter industries. Basically, all animals that are coming in, over 90% of them were leaving through positive outcomes and that's through adoptions, through returning pets back home to the, their owners and with working with rescue partners all over the country and even beyond yeah able to transfer some pets to Canada the pets.
10: And through KC Pet Project's hard and dedicated work, cats are being given back their nine lives.
8: Cats are just flying um, out of these adoption centers. We've been able to take our length of stay down from 41 days to about 25 days now, which helps us in so many ways. It helps us save more lives. Um, it helps. With our, um, you know, our expenses and everything on those cats, if they're not there longer, then um, you know we're not having to spend as much on those cats because they're getting into homes faster. And actually, the cats are a lot healthier in the long run too. So it's a really interesting program because they're less stressed, they're happier, um, they have you know sort of this great um, routine that they go through every day with our staff, and we're helping them become more adoptable so they can get into homes faster.
0: And thanks for that story, Monty. It's always nice to see and hear from organizations going out of their way to do something creative in order to solve a public problem. And I got to tell you, that's really creative. Cat tricks, fetching, my my dogs don't fetch. I want to send the pugs to the Kansas City Pet Project and see if we can get some high-fiving pugs when they leave that actually fetch. That'd be worth, well, I'd pay good money to see that happen. Again, that's the Kansas City Pet Project, and what they're doing to save animals' lives is just, well, it's just fantastic. So many cats just have to get put down around this country, and it's sad no one ever wants to see that happen, but sometimes that's what you got to do because sticking feral cats out into the population, especially rural areas... Just makes life, well, just a lot tougher for so many other animals. And my goodness, 41 days down to 25 days. I mean, this is really remarkable what they're doing. And again, our hats off to Kansas City Pet Project. And here at Our American Stories, we love to tell every kind of story. If you're interested in getting our newsletter, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up. We'll send you five great stories every week. That's five great stories every week. Sign up on our newsletter ouramericannetwork.org and we'll send you five great stories and that's both in audio form and in transcript form too. You can read it, you can listen to it however you want it. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And once again hat tip to our Hillsdale intern Monty Montgomery, the Kansas City pet project, their story and the saving of so many kitty cats lives. Their stories. High five and cat stories here This is our American stories and now it's time for the McClellan files where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan someone that you don't know but whose voice and life will surely captivate you and in today's episode Bob recalls his graduation from the Marine Corps boot camp and his ensuing assignments
2: The night before graduation, our assignments were announced. Out of 80 men, 58 would be deployed to Vietnam. Only seven were being sent off to a school. I was one of them. And my name was called, my D, I hollered, McClellan, 3042, mechanized supply accountant. And I asked him, sir, what is a supply accountant? He said, it means you're headed back east for a supply accounting school. You're very lucky. You're a lucky private. You get to carry a typewriter instead of a machine gun. It will be your job, McClellan, to make sure our Marines have underwear and ammo when they go out on patrol. Assigned back to Camp Pendleton after school, it seemed by like I stepped into a beehive. The base lived up to its reputation as the gateway to the Pacific. It was just like my recruiter said, there are only two kinds of Marines in this world, young man those going to Vietnam, and those coming back. I knew upon my return to Camp Pendleton from school that my name would come up very soon. It was just a matter of time. For a few months, I enjoyed the Southern California weather and stateside freedom until I received a phone call from the clerk at the company headquarters. Your orders are here, Mac. Pick them up when you get back to the barracks. By the way, you're going to ground forces. Good luck to you. It was November 1967. I would be gone by Christmas, but at least I'd be home for Thanksgiving. When the football games ended and the cold beer was consumed, my family would sit around the table for Thanksgiving dinner. The sound of loud conversations and arguments over who got what piece of the turkey were very typical in my house. But Once all the plates were filled and the eating started, the noise started to subside. It was during this lull that my mother turned to me and she said, Craig came home today and it would be nice if you went to visit him. I knew Craig had returned. I saw the feature story on him in the Sunday newspaper. They had a big picture of him sitting in his wheelchair wearing his green Marine Corps uniform. One leg of his trousers was folded under and the other covered his prosthesis. He lost one leg at the knee, and the other one at the hip. His right arm extended with a grasping device to use as a hand. He lost that arm at the shoulder. He was wounded two weeks before he was due to come home. Sitting prominently among the campaign ribbons on his chest was his purple heart and a bronze star with the V for valor. He vacantly gazed into the camera with little life in his eyes. The article discussed his wounds and stories about his boyhood. They interviewed his teachers and peers who remarked about what a great track star he was and all the potential he had. He was full of dreams, they said, of a bright future and how tragic it was that he would lose three limbs in the war. The article didn't even come close to the Craig that I knew. I told my mom, I said, I suppose I will. Immediately, my father leaned forward in his seat, and with a stern look and his finger pointed directly at me, he said, You don't have to see him if you don't want to. This is your last leave before going overseas, and seeing Craig is not going to do you or him any good. He will be here when you get home. See your friends and enjoy yourself while you can. But I did go see Craig. I had to. He was my friend. We were friends in high school. And now with both of us being in the Marines, it gave us something more intimate than just being buddies. He was my friend and a fellow Marine in trouble, and to leave without even visiting him would have been an unconscionable disregard of his sacrifice. The newspaper didn't discuss how he ended up joining at age 17 after dropping out of high school. He had poor grades, difficulties at home, and had not run track since ninth grade. He led a troubled life. I know because he spent some of that troubled life with my friends and myself. In 1965, at age 17, he left for the Marines, and at 19, he went to war. We spent the days together drinking all day. We talked and laughed about our crazy friends and our experiences in high school. The drinking, the fighting, the police, the mayhem we caused. In and out of our conversations, he would pause and recount in detail the area, the action, and the mine explosion that vaporized most of his body. He said it all happened so fast. One second he was trying to clear a path out of a village through a minefield that was being overrun, when an explosion nearby caused him to move his foot just a couple inches too far. He said he heard the click of the trigger. Boom. He stepped on one. But Vietnam was far away for both of us, so we lost ourselves in the alcohol for those afternoons, and for a while, it seemed as if we'd never left home. The fun quickly disappeared, however, when we went out into public. When Craig wheeled his chair into a bar, it seemed like everything stopped. The lights would continue to blink, and the jukebox kept playing, but the activity stopped, and it would become so quiet that you could hear the pool balls clicking in the back room. His anger was always just under the surface, and it would start to rise as the looks of the people gave evidence to all that he frightened them. He could see the looks of pity and aversion that people showed when they were near him. He made them uncomfortable, and he knew it. Conversations were very awkward. They ranged from cheerfulness as if nothing changed to sorrow for all that did. No one knew what to say to him. The welcome sign over the bar was not for him. His presence was too dark for levity, and his wounds were an ominous warning that his fate could be waiting for all the men in the bar. He knew, too, that the pretty girls would no longer be part of his life, and that they would never come back. He resented that the people around him were drinking and laughing, while he and men like him or getting shot and stepping on landmines serving their country. His drinking would accelerate, and as he verbally provoked people looking for a fight, he would get out of control. He wanted no intercession from me on his behalf. It didn't matter if anybody wanted to fight. It only mattered that he did. The loud cracking sound as he broke a pool cue on the edge of a table to running his wheelchair into someone or brandishing his pistol was evidence of the pain and conflict In a man who was down to his last 85 pounds of his body. No one would try to control or reason with him. The police, they would just simply let him go. He was a hurricane that you had to wait out until it exhausted itself. The pain from his body and psyche would become more visible as he tried to overcome his handicaps to be normal and fail. I have never seen any time in my life more pain in a human being than that of my friend. His emotions were uncontrollable, and he was unable to understand why they just didn't let him die on the battlefield and avoid coming home to this half-life that awaited him. Being around him, I felt impotent and helpless. There was just nothing I could do for him. He was so deeply wrapped in his pain and self-destruction that in a short time, he would recede from life and disappear. He told me that's what he wanted. He just wanted out. We talked a lot about what was going on in Vietnam, and though I tried to remember that not all men die or come home like Craig, the reality and consequences of war were very hard for me to ignore. I began to question the wisdom of enlisting and worried about what was ahead of me. I developed both doubt and fear. I understood now why my father cautioned me about making this visit to see him. In April 1983, the hurricane finally blew itself out. Craig Albers died at the age of 33 and is buried in the Willamette National Cemetery in Portland, Oregon. I still mourn the loss of my friend. I still think about him. I guess I always will. He deserves to be remembered. I understand more deeply now why he'd wish they'd left him there to die in the battlefields with his men rather than bring him home. He told me that there was honor and nobility dying on the battlefield with his comrades than being back here home alone. That was the Marine Corps way, he said. He felt guilty not being there with his men still fighting. Like his body, he thought there was something left incomplete by coming home. There was one more friend I had to say goodbye to before leaving for Camp Pendleton. Like Craig, he was in the news. Only he was serving eight years in the state penitentiary. And when we come
0: back, we continue with the McClellan Files, Bob McClellan's stories, here on Our American Stories. our American stories and we return to Bob McClellan's story now spending time with his childhood friends right before his first Marine Corps
2: assignment. His mother drove me down on visiting day. I remember walking under the guard towers and through all the fencing and barbed wire walls to reach the door to the prison. Moving from one chamber to the next ended each time with the cold boom of the steel door slamming behind us. The loud click of a lock as the bars closed took us deeper and deeper into the prison. There was no way out. Deep into its interior, we were escorted into a large cafeteria and seated. A guard brought Charlie out to see us and stood by to keep a watchful eye on him while we talked. The room was full of noisy conversations as babies cried and people spoke in very loud voices. Within the concrete walls, the acoustics bombarded our ears with the cacophony of a chorus of wailing and verbal chaos. He seemed changed as we spoke. He didn't appear to be the man who put the knife to my throat. He talked about Craig and what was going on at home. He described to his mother how the warden showed interest in his potential and was giving him better jobs. He smiled when he told her that he attended church on a regular basis, which pleased her tremendously. He reported the various compliments he was so proud of that he was getting in his reports and how hopefully he would be released early, come home, stay with her, get a job. She was very pleased to hear he was doing so well. She had spent a lifetime visiting him in places like this and wanted to see her boy lead a happy Christian life. It was a wish she would never live to see. But for the moment, her grief and pain was relieved. She became very emotional, and she asked the guard if she could use the ladies' room, and she left us to talk. I smiled, and I told him I was really glad he was changing so much. When he interrupted me and said, Oh, that's I'm doing real well here. Man, I get on the outside now. I buy and sell dope. I make money selling the stuff I could smuggle back in here. He continued rapidly telling me about his plans when he got out, and it became real clear to me he was going to be the same man when he got out as he was going in, a dangerous, violent, drug-addicted criminal. He stayed that way until after many years of destruction, addiction, and 39 arrests, he went to his brother's apartment one day, and while sitting on the edge of the bed, stuck a shotgun in his mouth, pulled the trigger, and sprayed his brains all over the wall. Driving home with his mother from the prison, I stared out at the countryside and tried to absorb the experiences I'd had on my leave. Now that I was at the end of it and due to be deployed, I wondered again about the wisdom of my enlistment. I had two possibilities out of high school, stay here and risk ending up like Charlie, or go in the Marines and possibly ending up like Craig. I tried to reason the answer out, but it escaped me. There was no clear answer, and I was hungry for some certainty, some certain outcome that I would be okay. At 17, I couldn't stand very high in my life experience to see what was ahead on the horizon. The answer waited for me out in the future, and I had to live through it to know what it contained. But I had to make a choice nonetheless. I didn't spend a lot of time deliberating my decision to enlist. I learned from my father that courage isn't found in thought. It lies in the ability to act in the face of uncertainty and take a chance. So I took one. On the night of the 16th of December 1967, I stood in a long line of Marines waiting to get our assignments before departing for the Marine Transit Center at Camp Anson Okinawa. Some of the two-and-a-half-ton canvas-covered trucks were full of our sea bag, while the others were loading Marines as they came out of the building and, once full, departed for El Toro Marine Corps Air Station. Each Marine carried in their record book the division and regiment to which they would be assigned. Standing with some men from my prior assignment waiting to be called, we talked about the likelihood of being assigned to the logistical command in Da Nang, when I noticed two Marines standing on a porch pointing to me and motioning me to come up front. Reaching the porch, I was greeted by Cassain, who was going overseas, and Scotty, who was not. I was surprised to see Scotty there and asked him, what are you doing up here? He said, I'm here on temporary duty. I work an order section, Mac. Where do you want to go, Vietnam or Okinawa? For a moment, I stood there trying to fathom what he was asking In my confusion, I blurted out, Okinawa. Where in the hell is Okinawa? It's an island somewhere over near China or Japan, he said. He gathered four of us who all had the same MOS of supply accountants and marched us into the building past a line of Marines that snaked along the hallway toward a loud thumping sound at the front of it. At the desk was a Marine with different colored rubber stamps bearing the names of the many divisions and regiments we were headed for in a matter of hours. Do they need supply accountants at 3rd FSR? Scotty asked, and assigned these Marines to the 4th Service Regiment, 3rd Marine Division, Camp Foster. The Marine at the desk took the four folders, opened them up, and with a boom, 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 he stamped 3rd FSR, 3rd Div into our record books. Our destiny was now determined and assured. I thought about the promise that I made to my father. He made me promise not to volunteer. I think we both felt it was ceremonial, as it was inconceivable that the possibility of not going to Vietnam even existed. I had mixed feelings about being a Marine on a small island in time of war. I felt guilty. I'm in the Marine Corps, for God's sakes. I felt a pull to prove myself and to see what I was really made of. This was the war of my generation, too, and it looked like I was going to miss it. But my father's words were very clear. If they need you, they will send you. If they don't, don't ask for trouble. I felt the angst of having something to prove to him, but my father didn't believe war is the place to prove something about yourself. You fight because it's necessary. You win so you can come home. To him, it was that simple. We'd fought at Guadalcanal in Korea, and yet this was the promise he extracted from me when I enlisted. I realized, too, that his opinion was the only one that mattered to me, and if they don't send me, then I won't be there. The next night, I sat in a brightly lit classroom at Camp Ants in Okinawa, waiting for the actual battalion and company to which I'd be assigned. Sometime before dawn, I fell asleep at my desk until the Marine next to me woke me to say, hey, hey, I think they just called your name. I walked up to the counter. I noticed that the room was almost empty. No doubt everyone was in the back getting their jungle boots, packs, jungle fatigues, and miscellaneous gear to get ready to head to Da Nang. Standing at the counter, the clerk simply opened my record book, stamped Headquarters Battalion, Supply Company, 3rd FSR and pointed to the door and said, All right, Marine, there'll be a bus here at 0800 to pick you up. Tell the driver you get off at Camp Foster. As I walked to the door, I walked by Kassane, Fury, and Green, who sat off to the side with a small group of Marines, stopping to ask, Hey, aren't you going to Camp Foster? I immediately said something had changed. Hussein opened his record book to reveal a red line stamped across 3rd FSR, and underneath it was stamped 1st Marine Division. During the morning hours, everyone had had their orders changed. Out of the two Boeing 727s that flew over the night before, there were only two of us waiting for the bus on the corner to go to Camp Foster, Okinawa. Everyone else headed south, vietnam
0: and thanks to bob mcclellan for these stories the mcclellan files by the way an underappreciated fact about our military is just how many support troops it takes to put one rifleman into the field of battle there are about 10 support troops for each one dedicated to frontline combat we don't hear enough about these men and women working in logistics administration transportation and so much more this is our American stories. Bob McClellan's story. More after these messages.
7: King Tut. King now when he was a young man, he never thought it. Boy, King,
4: King Tut. How'd you get so funky? Funky Tut. Did you do the, funky? In Arizona. Did the King
0: Tut. This is Lee Habib, and this is our American now, stories. Well, and that's Steve Martin performing King Tut on Saturday Night Live. Oh, An actor, a writer, a producer, a musician. Steve Martin came to public notice in the 60s as a writer for the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour and later as a frequent guest on The Tonight Show. In the 70s, he performed his odd and offbeat and quirky comedy routines before packed national houses. He's returned to doing stand-up and also regularly tours with his bluegrass band, the Steep Canyon Rangers. We start this segment with Steve's classic stand-up comedy album called Let's Get Small. Recorded in San Francisco at a boarding house in 77, the album went platinum and peaked at number 10 on the Billboard pop charts. This album won the Grammy in 1979 for Best Comedy Album. In this clip, Steve gives hilarious takes on smoking.
7: Well, not too many people smoking out here tonight. That's pretty good. It kind of bothers some people if you're in a sleazy place like this and people start smoking, you know. It doesn't bother me in a nightclub because I'm used to it. If I'm in a restaurant though, and I'm eating and someone says, Hey, you mind if I smoke? I say, I do know. Do you mind if I fart? <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my habits. <laughs> yeah, they got a special section for me on airplanes now. I quit once for a year, you know. But I gained a lot of weight. It's hard to quit. Um, You know, after sex, I really have the urge to light one up, huh? (laughs) See, I'm not a very tactful person. You ever start talking to someone and you forget what you're going to say and you're standing there going, uh... gee, I was going to say something, I forgot what it was. And they always go, well, it must not have been very important or you wouldn't have forgot it. <laughs> I would say, oh, I remember, I'm radioactive. <laughs> Shake. Okay, we're moving now, eh, folks? <laughs> Yes, this is comedy. All right. Well, I decided I'm taking up smoking. My uh, doctor told me I wasn't getting enough tar. <laughs> you know, the fun part of smoking is deciding what brand to smoke. Now, Virginia Slims—that's a woman's cigarette, right? What do they have, like little breasts on them or something? <laughs> um. <laughs>
0: Here's another funny clip from that same album Where Steve talks about how mad he is At his 102 year old mother
7: I'm so mad at my mother I don't know She's 102 years old She called me up the other day She wanted to borrow $10 for some food I said, hey, I work for a living so I loan her the money. I have one of my secretaries take it down. And yesterday she called me and said she can't pay me back for a while.
2: I said, what is it?"
7: So I worked it out whether I'm having her work on my transmission. <laughs> and if she can't fix that, I'm having her move my barbells up to the attic. <laughs>
0: Oh, and every once in a while in our American Stories, we want to just dig into a comic's life. We're going to be doing this over and over again over the next few months. Born Standing Up, A Comic's Life is a memoir released by Martin back in 2007. It chronicles his early life, his days working for Disneyland in the magic shop, working at coffee shops and clubs as a comedy act, his relationships, his eventual fame, and the reason why he quit stand-up comedy at the height of his fame in 1981. In this clip... We hear a portion of this fascinating look into the mind of a comic genius, read by Martin himself from his own audiobook. It starts with Steve's nonconformist chant. And
7: now, let's repeat the nonconformist oath I promise to be different, I promise to be, I promise to be, I promise to be unique. I promise not to repeat things other people say. <laughs> I did stand-up comedy for 18 years. Ten of those years were spent learning, four years were spent refining, and four were spent in wild success. My most persistent memory of stand-up is of my mouth being in the present and my mind being in the future. The mouth speaking the line, the body delivering the gesture, while the mind looks back, observing, analyzing, judging, worrying and then deciding when and what to say next. Enjoyment while performing was rare. Enjoyment would have been an indulgent loss of focus that comedy cannot afford. After the shows, however, I experienced long hours of elation or misery depending on how the show went, because doing comedy alone on stage is the ego's last stand. My decade is the 70s, with several years extending on either side. Though my general recall of the period is precise, My memory of specific shows is faint. I stood on stage, blinded by lights, looking into blackness, which made every place the same. Darkness is essential. If light is thrown on the audience, they don't laugh. I might as well have told them to sit still and be quiet. The audience necessarily remained a thing unseen, except for a few front rows, where one sourpuss could send me into panic and desperation. The comedian's slang for a successful show is, I murdered them which I'm sure came about because you finally realized that the audience is capable of murdering you. Stand-up is seldom performed in ideal circumstances. Comedy's enemy is distraction, and rarely do comedians get a pristine performing environment. I worried about the sound system, ambient noise, hecklers, drunks, lighting, sudden clangs, latecomers and loud talkers, and not to mention the nagging concern, is this funny? Yet the seedier the circumstances, the funnier one can be. I suppose these worries keep the mind sharp and the senses active. I can remember instantly retiming a punchline to fit around the crash of a dropped glass of wine, or raising my voice to cover a patron's ill-timed sneeze, seemingly microseconds before the interruption happened. I was seeking comic originality, and fame fell on me as a byproduct. The course was more plodding than heroic. I did not strive valiantly against doubters, but took incremental steps studded with a few intuitive leaps. I was not naturally talented. I didn't sing, dance, or act, though working around that minor detail made me inventive. I was not self-destructive, though I almost destroyed myself. In the end, I turned away from stand-up with a tired swivel of my head and never looked back until now. A few years ago... I began researching and recalling the details of this crucial part of my professional life, which inevitably touches upon my personal life, and was reminded why I did stand-up and why I walked away.
0: Fascinating, and what a writer. And we want to end where we started, and let's go back to Steve Martin's comedy album, Let's Get Small, and hear his hilarious insight into how it's impossible to be depressed when listening to the sound of a banjo.
7: It's not a happy sound, was just... You just can't sing a depressing song when you're playing the banjo, and you just can't go, Oh, death and grief and sorrow and murder. When you're playing the banjo, everything's okay. You know? Hey Steve, your house is burning down. I just thought the banjo was the one thing that could have saved Nixon, you <laughs> so know. He went on television right at the right time, went, Hi, oh, everything's great. When he was, I think it'd be great if he had been traveling around the country and got off the plane and said, I'd like to talk about politics, but first, a little Foggy Mountain breakdown. Then they go to foreign countries and they get off the plane, and people go, Hey, do Foggy Mountain. Now, <laughs> yeah, the banjo's so happy. I think, I think people who are out of work, instead of giving them money, we should give them a banjo. <laughs> and they go home and, Did you get a job today, dear? Nope. <laughs>
2: Doesn't matter, though.
0: Oh, and we're cracking up here, and that's what we want to do, and we're going to be going back. Across the pantheon, we're going to be bringing in Richard Pryor, Sid Caesar, Woody Allen's nightclub years. You want to hear a great stand-up, whatever you think of Woody personally, his movies, his Greenwich Village tapes, some of the funniest stuff you've ever heard. Uh, we've all got to laugh, and we got to enjoy ourselves. Steve Martin. And we're going to go out again where we started with Steve Martin singing King Tut on Saturday Night Live. This is Our American Stories. Great job on this, Jesse.
6: Dancing by
0: the night. Enjoy the music.
7: The
6: ladies love to sky. Rock and him by. Rockin' tuck tuck.
7: <laughs> he ate a crocodile. <laughs> he gave his life for tourism. <laughs>